This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Let's pray. Lord, you have called us by name and we are yours. We ask you, our shepherd, to come, to come and feed us your sheep. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would guide us, that we would hear a word from you. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So John Piper said, life is war. That's not all it is, but it is always that. He continues, our weakness in prayer is owing largely to our neglect of this truth. Life is war. That's not all it is, but it is always that. We can forget that as Christians. We can forget that we believe that we do not only battle our own sinfulness, which we battle all the time, but that there is also an enemy, a battle that is outside of us. This morning's passage in Ephesians looks at what kind of war we are in. What's it mean that life is war? And what kind of weapons we have that will help us stand firm, as Paul says. Stand firm, stay standing against the enemy's attacks. So first, uh, let's ask, if life is war, who is the war against? Let's look at what Paul says. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against who? Does he say so that you can take your stand against the Democrats? So that you can take your stand against the Republicans? So that you can take your stand against the theological liberals or the fundamentalists? No, he says so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And then he adds that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of dark of this dark world and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I think this is really one of the most important verses in scripture because we can begin to think that our struggles against actual people, it's against our political enemies or our personal enemies. The folks that you don't like, the folks that have hurt you. And that turns us against each other. But we are not primarily battling against those who are politically or theologically different or the people we don't like. Even those who peddle on truth, even those who are heretics, are not ultimately our enemies. They are complex people like us. They are sinners like us, just like us. We need to remember that the true battle is against spiritual forces of darkness, rulers, authorities, and powers of this dark world. That's who we are battling, and that's who is out to destroy you this morning. Our culture is so divided and raging against each other, but we as a church must not rage against a group of people or against other people like us, but against darkness, against evil itself. That is what we're raging against. 
And C.S. Lewis talks about in Screw Tape Letters that while some people are maybe too fascinated by evil, that most of us here in the West tend to ignore the reality of evil. Or he says that we've been taught this cartoon image of the devil as this like guy with horns and hooves that's all red. And so he says that since reasonable people think, well, who could believe in that? that we just throw out the belief in evil or in a devil altogether, in darkness altogether. I'd also add that we in Western, as Westerners, um, and I've also seen this when I've been overseas, can think of demonic work as too individual. We can talk about it as, uh, for instance, people talk about someone's demons when they're talking about their addictions. Or we can tell stories about encountering a demon And I don't doubt that many of these stories are true. I think they're true. But this passage also makes clear that the forces of evil aren't just like little goblins that go around wreaking havoc in individual lives. There are systems, there are principalities of evil that are bigger than that, that are behind the way much of culture seems to work. About this passage... N.T. Wright says, It is, of course, a surprise to many that there is a struggle at all. Yes, we think. We find, of course, we find it difficult from time to time to practice our Christianity. We find it hard to forgive people, to pray regularly, to resist temptation, to learn more about the faith. But as far as they're concerned, that's the end of it. This is the part I want you to pay attention to. They have never thought that their small struggles might be part of a larger campaign. They are like soldiers fighting in a fog, never seeing and actually not knowing about the others, not far away in the same battle, let alone the other theaters where the war is continuing. We face opposition. This is the way that mass evil seems to kind of breed on its own, how in a situation this one person does an evil act, and then somewhere else another person does a deeply evil act or foolish act, and then suddenly the whole seems greater than the sum of its parts. Something is more is at work. This is how world wars get started. This is, the viol- this is how mass violence against children can be carried out, even in the church. This is the power behind genocide. This is the invisible force behind Jim Crow. This is the work of the culture's mass rejection of the gospel. They are demonic and evil systems at work. It's like the organized crime of hell. Our battle is against the enemy who is out to destroy us. Don't ignore this, or don't turn it into a little cartoon devil on someone's shoulder that you picture. This is the forces of darkness that is behind all the destruction and horror of our world. So how... Can we not be destroyed by such an enemy? Scripture tells us to put on the full armor of God. And I want to briefly look at what that is. First, the belts of truth. The most important thing that we claim about the story of Jesus' death and resurrection is that it's true, that it's reality, and that this fact, this action, not just personal belief, but fact of reality allows us to resist evil. N.T. Wright again says, never give up on the sheer truth of the gospel. 
It is true what we're proclaiming today. Second, the breastplate of righteousness. This is also sometimes called the, the breastplate of justice. And this is not primarily about your own virtue or your own righteousness to sort of keep that up, although God calls you to be righteous. But this is about the status of those who are justified, who are made right before God because of what Jesus has done for you. The righteousness of God is solid. It's like a breastplate of armor. This is not about the fluctuating righteousness that you find in your own life, but about God's solid gift of righteousness to you in Christ. Third, we have feet that are made ready by the gospel of peace. This is the work of Jesus that brings peace both between God and man, and between man and man. And because we have this gospel of peace, we're made ready to go to anyone, anyone on earth, and spread this gospel. Fourth, we have the shield of faith. And I like the translation. There's some translations that would describe this as the shield of loyalty to Jesus. I like that definition of faith, loyalty to Jesus or believing loyalty, that we are shielded by having loyalty to God against the flaming arrows of the enemy. What are those arrows? What are some of those arrows? Maybe doubt, despair, suffering, temptation, temptation to sin, temptation to defend our own selves instead of relying on, on God. Temptation to take up our own armor of weapons or violence or greed or power or even success. But we're called to loyalty to Jesus, the shield of faith. Fifth, the helmet of salvation. We can stand against the enemy knowing that we are already rescued, that we already have been given a helmet of salvation. We are saved. If you are in Christ this morning, if you have put your hope in Jesus, you have been given a helmet of salvation. Not by ourselves or something we did, but because of Jesus' work. Sixth, the sword of the Spirit. And many, many people and commentators have pointed out that most of the armor listed is defensive. It's not about attack. It's simply about staying upright, standing Continuing to stand against the enemy's attack. The one offensive weapon listed is the sword of the Spirit, and we are told this is the Word of God. And this isn't probably, in Paul's context, referring to the canon of Scripture, the Bible that you have in your hands, which didn't exist at the time, but to the Word of the Gospel to the message of Jesus, the message of Jesus coming as the Messiah, the deliverer of God's people, that we go out with that message. And lastly, Paul says, pray. He, he doesn't list this as armor, but in the context of this passage, it's clear that this is how we resist the enemy. This is part of how we resist the enemy is you pray. In our broken and battling moment of history, perhaps what the thing we most need right now is prayer. Prayer is mysterious. I don't know exactly how it works. No one knows exactly how it works. But it is our practice of coming before God 
And it is powerful. If you believe that life is war, you will see evidently your urgent need for prayer. John Piper, the quote I read to you earlier, he continues saying, we cannot know what prayer is for until we know that life is war. Prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It is not surprising, listen up, it is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. God has given prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie so that we can call headquarters for everything we need as the kingdom of Christ advances in the world. Are we praying for each other, Ascension? As a practice this month, it's a brand new month of September, I want each of you to pick one or two people in the church to pray for. And it can be on your way to work or at night or whenever it kind of works for you in your day, in a pocket of the day. And it can be a friend, close friend here at church. But I also want you to pick at least one person to pray for that you aren't friends with. Maybe it's a distant acquaintance. Maybe it's an enemy. But pray for that person. And then Paul says, and pray for me. And as a leader in the church, I so feel this. I feel this urge and need that Paul has for, please pray for me. He's pleading. We, as, as clergy and as church staff, need your prayers. We need your prayers for our families, for their protection, for our protection, and for our vocations. And do you know that we pray for you? Do you know that church, and this is one of the things that I've, been, I've most loved as being kind of a newbie here, is that this church staff gathers regularly and prays for you, oftentimes by name. We need to pray for each other so that we can stand against all the attacks of the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Prayer is not like a little Pez dispenser to get treats from, to get comforts in the den, as Piper says. Prayer is this lifeline in battle. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you are in battle and that when you call out to God, that prayer is that crackling on the walkie-talkie where you know, where you know that the one in charge says, you're not alone. I'm here. Church, this morning, I want to remind you that the Christian life is a spiritual war. Do not be surprised. Attacks are coming. But I also want you to trust in this armor. I want to point out that this armor, that truth and righteousness before God, that the word of the gospel of peace, that salvation is not something you earn, but it is something that you can rely on. Soldiers in battle don't make their own armor by their own efforts. God gives you this armor as a gift. One of my very favorite stories is about um, our, our friend Hunter Dockery, who's a mentor to Jonathan and I. 
at, he was our college pastor, and he has a son named Jonathan Dockery. And so the Dockerys were missionaries in Ireland for, for a long, long time, over a decade. And their little boys grew up there. And midway, um, when jo- their son Jonathan Dockery was in high school, they moved to the States. And uh, because they had grown up in Ireland, they, he'd never really seen American football in his life. They were into rugby, and they never played American football. And um, I love the story, and it's the only time I'm going to talk about sports from the pulpit. So if you're into that, pay attention. So, uh, so Jonathan <laughs> decides to go out for football practice. I mean, for fo- the football team at his high school. And on the way to practice, about five minutes from um, the field, he turns to his dad and says, okay, dad, what are the rules of football? He had no idea. He's never seen American football. So Hunter kind of tries to tell him, but it's hard to explain all of football in five minutes. And so he gets there, and Hunter's like, you know, he has no idea. He has no idea. And the coach knows that he has no idea, but he likes him. He's a good kid, and he likes him. So one game, the first time he was ever put in on special teams, the coach puts him in, and he calls him up, and he says, Dockery, come up here. And he holds him by the face mask, and he says, I want you to find a man on the other team, and I want you to run at him as hard as you can and knock him down as hard as you can. So he goes out there in special teams, finds a man on the other team, a boy, because these are high school students, runs, boom, knocks him down. Plays over, he comes back in. Next time, coach calls him, Dockery, come up here, grabs him by the face mask. He says, did you hit that man as hard as you can? And Jonathan said, yes, sir. He said, did it hurt? And Jonathan said, no, sir. And he said, all right, now you trust your equipment. You can trust your equipment. So what I want you to do is go out there and find the guy with the ball and run at him as hard as you can and knock him down. So Jonathan goes out, and Hunter tells the story as a very proud papa and says he was a heat-seeking missile. And he goes out, and he goes, and they call, the play starts, and he runs, and he finds the guy with the ball, and he plows him over, and the crowd goes wild. And he did it because he trusted his equipment. That's what I want to see for us this morning. You've got to trust this equipment against the enemy. If we are going to do anything to stand against the dark forces, to plow any kind of evil down, you have to trust your equipment. It's enough. You will not be destroyed out there. Attacks are coming, but I want you to trust your equipment. I want you to get out on the field and play, knowing that the armor that God has given you is strong armor. When we approach this table together this morning, we are proclaiming that the reality of what this meal represents, the cross of Jesus, the salvation that Jesus gives us, is the most powerful force in the universe. It is more powerful than even our own sin. It is more powerful than armies or weapons or the power of violence. It is more powerful than any suffering we could endure. 
The reality of Jesus and his salvation is more powerful than the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So come this morning to the table and trust your equipment. Trust the equipment that God has given you as a gift. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.